before we begin today's episode, I wanted to point out that uh, this is a huge, huge subject, massive undertaking for both of us, a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. I had an outline, we went off script, we went back to the script, and uh, even with that, I know that we missed stuff. We recorded two and a half hours worth of conversation, and we barely scratched the surface. I created this podcast as a no-gatekeeping zone, a safe space for people to discuss the movies that they love, and part of that is the experience of seeing ourselves on screen represented in some way. That's why this means so much to me. So for this very special presentation, I wanted to at least cover most of the essentials, uh, cover our experience with watching these films, and making a point of how far we've come and how far we still need to go because of how much of a conversation we had. Uh, we're going to be splitting this episode into two parts with part two coming out next week. So there will be no rotating segment in this episode or a Q and A uh, that was recorded and that will be included in next week's episode. So whether you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, or you're simply an ally trying to expand your horizons and learn a little bit more about how we've been represented in film, you have come to the right place because we come to this place for magic. We come to this podcast to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that, that indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim, dazzling images on a huge silver screen. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this, and stories feel perfect and powerful. Because here they are. He's looking at you. What do you think about what in your seatbelts? It's going to be a bumpy night. the Welcome to another episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith, joined today by Carlos Frank Estrada. Hello, everyone. It's very nice to meet y'all. All right. Tell us about yourself, Carlos. So I am uh, a regular contributor for Handbasket Magazine. You can get that online on Handbasket Zine. Uh, you can also view that straight from your own phones. Uh, it is a zine for LGBT life. It's a lot of poems, a lot of essays that gives you a nice slice of life of how queer people around the U.S. live. Yes, I have read a few of your articles too. They're they're very good. So thank you. Highly recommend uh, Handbasket Magazine. A lot of it, a lot of the stuff that I do is very sad, but it's also very cathartic in a way. It's great that people are <laughs> reading my stuff, but it's also. Um, heartbreaking. They relate to some of my essays uh, that I submit to that. No, that's understandable. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do today's episode, the gay experience, I mean, it's not monolithic, but there's like a lot of things that so many of us can relate to. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's cathartic to write about it, but it's also cathartic to read about it and to like understand that we're not alone. Exactly. Um, we do have losses. We do have victories. We have... Um, so many different types of stories that we want to tell that it shows that we aren't just a cookie cutter community. Um, we have our own thoughts, our own feelings, and our own hot takes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. The, the There's diversity within our ranks. Not just the fact that, you know, like there's a reason it's more than one letter. That's There's a reason we say bisexual, we say lesbian, we say transgender, we say so many other things. It's just because like, but also like within each group, there's diversity there as well. Absolutely. Uh, Carlos, I'm about to ask you a big question. Uh, a lot of times my guests have a hard time answering it, but what is your favorite movie? Oh, oh, that's hard. Uh... <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, I would have to say not my most favorite, but my best comfort film is uh, Amelie. Amelie is so good. I know, it's very basic though. No, it's not. 
Uh, I feel like it's a safe one, but at the same time, it's a nice snippet into the early 2000s when, you know, you can afford living alone uh, in a major city. Basically an epiphany of doing good. Uh, doing good as well as not reciprocate, not, not expecting any good happening to you or any good being reciprocated back to you. It's selfless uh, duty and being rewarded. Like when you when you watch the movie, you feel that everything that she has done up to that point wraps up and it is well deserved. She deserves happiness. It is. Yeah, it's such a non-cynical film and it, it's refreshing to see that. Absolutely. And the unfortunate part is when the director was interviewed not too long ago, if they were ever going to make a sequel of Amelie, heads up, if you find the article, uh, it'll kind of make you laugh. He refuses. He says, I will not because Paris is ugly. Oh, no. Yeah. He can make it pretty. That's what, I mean, (laughs) that's what set... That's what production designers are for. Exactly, but they, in the film, they filmed in the city, and that was their main, like, pull into the city of Paris. Yeah. But, you know, I digress. That makes me sad. <laughs> As someone who's not yet been to Paris, I'm like, I hope it's not actually ugly. It's not. Okay. Is there something else you would briefly like to geek out about? Currently, no. I'm actually very under the radar when it comes to a lot of the media I consume. Um, because I don't really like interacting with the fandoms attached to them. Understandable. But I'll still go enjoy uh, a lot of like the movies and TV shows that'll come out. However, I have a very strict do not interact because of it. And if you saw my laundry list of muted words on Twitter, you'd understand too. Yeah, it, I, I do get it. Like sometimes I remember when, say, The Last Jedi came out and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, to me, that's like a perfect film. And I was so surprised to see the backlash that it received and continues to receive to this day. For no reason. Yeah. Like, it is, that series is, frankly, it's good. It's yeah. good. Um, and you have to take it as is. And yeah. You have to take it as is as a direction that they want to go with in the film. And you can go see it. It's yeah. fine. No one's, no one's going to kill you if you don't like it or not yeah however you shouldn't be harassing the people who are involved in the films for your dislike thank you that, that happens way too much and it's ridiculous absolutely and it's not, not just that fandom that does it it happens like even the ghostbusters fandom i'm like the ghostbusters is a fandom okay no shade but you'd be very surprised <sighs> remember when we had to go see ghostbusters on the rooftop of the freedom yeah yeah that that, that whole fandom uh, that whole fandom is great um surface level you don't want to really interact with them unfortunately because they will do have really good takes on the series itself however when you get onto the newer stuff especially things that they recently created you kind of just want to slink back into the bushes like homer simpson yeah and uh I'm, I, I do think that this isn't like the majority of the fan base i do think that it's a very loud and very vocal chunk of it but not like they don't make up most of the fans if that makes oh, sense. oh absolutely and that's why i don't have a do not interact is because they're the ones who are banging the pots and pans the loudest and what's getting pushed through social media and what's getting more engagement so i'm not seeing yeah and we're not seeing a lot of the people who have that constructive criticism and giving a actual like feedback of what could have been done better that's not happening because that doesn't get engagement you and i will literally have good takes on twitter and get five likes tops yeah but if you have a hot take that someone didn't like you literally have to shut off your phone for a while so that way you can have some peace of mind that is true i'm sorry i kind of wish you had something to geek out about (laughs) (laughs) it's quite all right i still really do enjoy a lot of media currently however i at the moment i'm not currently involved in that that's understandable i see you shiver with I may not know my powers, but I know a bitch when I see one. 
right, so today we're going to be discussing a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. It's also a very big subject to the point where while I was outlining it, it's like, what do we leave in? What do we leave out? And for that reason, I decided to record a very long episode and uh, split it up into two parts. Uh, so I'm gonna start this off kind of simple. What was your first LGBT plus movie? Uh, what you watched last night. Latter days? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, latter days. That was literally the first experience I ever had with LGBT film. Because we are at that age. We are at that age when that came out in theaters. Yes, I remember that too. Uh, I remember going to the Castro Theater when I used to live in the Bay Area to see that film. And it was mind-blowing to actually see gay people on the screen. And not yeah. just gay people, openly gay character. And of course, you know, the, the Mormon character yes of course but having a literally out and proud main character in a storyline yeah in a relatively independent even like i think the biggest name in that was joseph gordon levitt but that was before he was joseph gordon levitt yeah um i mean he, he had done some stuff here and there about like and and at that point gay films were still relegated to like the independent sphere uh it wasn't until like about two years later that it would we would be catapulted into the mainstream, but we'll, we'll get we'll get to that later. Absolutely. Uh, I actually mean it this time. I can't discuss this subject without discussing that movie, so we will definitely get to it later. Yeah, I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. Oh, I'll yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my first LGBT uh, film uh, was In and Out with Kevin Kline and Joan Cusack. Oh, I think I've seen that. Where he's, a, he's an English-slash-drama teacher who... Uh, one of his former students wins an Oscar mm -hmm. and goes on stage and he he won an Oscar for playing a gay character and then he's, he thanked his teacher and at the end he's like, and he's gay. And this teacher who wasn't even out to himself yet was like, what? <laughs> and it, it it's a hilarious movie and at the end of it he, he realizes he actually is gay. That movie I thought was interesting and I didn't realize it until recently that it was inspired by an actual thing that happened. Like uh, when Tom Hanks won his Oscar for Philadelphia, he also thanked someone that he knew who was gay and basically outed them on national television. Which is such a risk. <laughs> yeah. It is such a risk, especially during that time. Yeah, the early 90s. And Philadelphia was a movie about the AIDS epidemic and it was it was before... And at a time where people didn't know much about AIDS. Mm -hmm. Like, even in the movie, the main character is like, so, like, I can't catch it, right? Like, if I shake hands with this guy, I can't catch it. And uh, I'm, like, already jumping around because, again, we're talking about, like, two completely different movies. But it pertains to the actual movie where it's kind of related to. Yeah. So it's fine. Uh, so, yeah, don't, don't out people on national television. That's not cool. But I'm sure... Tom Hanks, of all people, meant well. Yeah, and they, they do mean well. And sometimes we have to realize that it's a snippet in history. It's a yes. snippet in history. Um, we don't know if the person that Tom Hanks accidentally outed um, had to basically... Outing someone um, immediately, you are running at full speed at that moment. Because at that point, you're living a life that is under the radar. And when that's basically pulled into the light, it's hit the ground running. Yeah. And a lot of things, a lot of movies like Love, Simon, which we'll talk about later, yes. um, deals with that. And how you literally see breakneck speed of recovery, communication, lack of communication, uh, resentment, all, all at once. Yeah. And for this movie, for In and Out, it is played for comedy, um, yeah. and it's pretty effective too. Joan Cusack, I think, is just hilarious as the uh, bride to be who finds out that her fiance is actually gay. And there's this great line where uh, she's like, "Does anybody know how many times I had to watch Funny Lady?" Oh my god! <laughs> oh, it's... oh. And, and it's great, and it plays off a lot of the stereotypes, especially back in the '90s, yeah. of why gay men loved in uh, in the time to feel more relatable. Of yes, this man is gay. Yeah, and yes, I also love Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so can't. She's yeah. great. She's great. Yeah. <laughs> no notes. No notes. So to discuss LGBT film, uh, it's important to understand like the history of it. And 
how far back into the history of film that same-sex intimacy goes, which that goes all the way back to the very first images that were recorded on film. In 1894, there's a thing, you can find it on YouTube, it's called the Dixon Experimental Sound Film, which, is, which also, for 1894, there's a sound on film aspect to it too. William Dixon is playing a violin into a sound recorder, which is comically big, but you know, I guess late 1800s, and two men are like very intimately dancing to that violin. Um, watching it from today's perspective, you could see like, oh wow, this is like two gay men enjoying an intimate moment on camera. There's been some pushback to that because in that time period, same-sex intimacy wasn't really that taboo. No. And we would see it not just with the gay community, but also with heterosexual community. Absolutely. There's a lot of blurred lines to it because they didn't have so much hang-ups on it. And seeing it through the eyes uh, of the 21st century, looking at that film and that footage, it's unheard of. Yeah. You literally take it back. I'm like, did this actually happen? And I think that's when a lot of... Uh, it's a good example of how a lot of it stems from, and they were roommates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, There's more of that, like, in, say, silent cinema... Charlie Chaplin did this short called A Woman where he cross-dresses and pretends to be a woman. That becomes a trope throughout much of comedy uh, up to the 2000s even. In A Woman, he tricks two men into kissing each other. And a year later, he does a movie called Behind the Curtain. That's the one that has the first gay gag. So one character supposedly kissed another man and another character mocks him by making effeminate gestures and like sticking his butt out and things like that yeah and there are definitely tropes that you see even today um when showing effeminate men um portraying as gay is he you know <laughs> limp <-wristing. laughs> yeah but it's also just one trope that we see constantly and we'll talk about uh diversity in how we present ourselves and our yes. expressions. Yes. 1919, we actually get a film with the first gay protagonist from Germany, of all places. Well, I've read somewhere that pre-1930s Germany was actually kind of uh, progressive. Not only progressive, but they had a whole institute that was categorizing and studying uh, the LGBTQ community yeah. uh, of that time, making huge, va uh, vast uh, knowledge for anyone to know. So that way it destigmatizes the community as well as giving a voice to the unheard. Yes. The film was called Different from the Others, uh, which I, uh, admittedly, I have not seen this one, but having read about it, I do want to give it a look. Mm -hmm. uh, just knowing that that's like the first like gay protagonist on a, in, a, in film. Right? Absolutely. And it just comes down to where can we find that? Yeah. Where is it available? I will look that up and I will throw that in the show notes, probably. Beautiful. <laughs> I wrote this down as a queer collaboration, uh, one of the very first examples of it. Um, Oscar Wilde's Salome was adapted into a film. Oscar Wilde himself was gay. gay man. Yeah. He was gay man. Uh, I was confused for a second because I also wrote bisexual, but that was in reference to the lead actress, Ala Nasimova. Mm -hmm. And as well as her rumored lover, who was the set designer of the film, Natasha Rambova. And a lot of the uh, female courtier characters were actually played by men in drag. So that was kind of cool to see it like all the way back in the 1920s. Yeah, especially because a lot of 1920s queer scene um, was still very much in the shadows unless you were in a big city. Yes. Um, so having a full set or a good amount of people um, in that film being allegedly queer is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is all, like, pre-code, and we will get to the code We're later. not there yet. We're not there. We, we need to get to the 30s first. <laughs> Another interesting thing was, like, the very first uh, Best Picture winner. I'm going to be a little bit nitpicky here. It wasn't... It was one of two Best Picture winners that year. A lot of people like to erase Sunrise from that, and Sunrise is a fantastic film, and it should not be erased. Wings is the film I'm talking about today. Uh, it's a World War One film. Uh, about two pilots 
And towards the end of the film, they share an intimate kiss. Which is really, like, surprising because of that it's an intimate kiss. Um, and I know there's going to be a new film coming out with a similar storyline called Firebird. Yes. Uh, I think that just came out not too long ago. Um, so we'll have to put that on our radar. Yes. Um, I think it's running the independent film circuit. Um, but it's literally a pilot and uh, soldiers in World War One. don't quote me on that, having an intimate affair during the war. Oh, yeah. That looks really interesting. As for Wings, mm-hmm. um, apparently that's also not necessarily a gay moment because no. uh, it wasn't uncommon during the war for two men, especially like if one is about to die, to share an intimate kiss like in the trenches and stuff. Oh, absolutely. And it's oftentimes, unfortunately, up to interpretation um, because a lot of people do not know um, that it was common. It was a common place for even heterosexuals to have intimate moments together, like we spoke about a little yeah. earlier. It's surprising to see on film with present eyes. Yes. Something happened that sort of changed what it meant to be masculine. I'm guessing it has something to do with World War II. Oh, it's definitely World War II because a lot of it was during that time, uh, there was a lot of decriminalization of uh, the queer community uh, within Europe. And I mean, that's literally why we have the upside down pink triangle was because that's what they marked uh, those who are gay in internment camps. And that was the, the basic header of how blue became a boy's color because um, pink was being related to gay men being imprisoned. Yeah. A couple other interesting tidbits from the 1930s. Marlene Dietrich, the first leading lady to kiss another woman on screen in uh, the film Morocco. I believe she was bisexual. Yes. Yes, she was. And also a legend. I, I have to say she was amazing. Yeah, she's referenced all, all throughout history. The most recent uh, would be RuPaul's Drag Race. Of course. <laughs> uh, with uh, season nine, season nine for Snatch Game, uh, definitely a really good uh, snippet and how she was and how she is portrayed. And 1931, back in Germany, there was a lesbian love story called Madchen in Uniform, which enraged the Nazi party so much that they tried to destroy every copy of it. Fortunately, they failed because we can still see this movie today. It's fantastic, by the way, if you haven't had the chance to see it, but... Where can we see it? Oh, uh, when I saw it, I believe it was on uh, Tubi. What's great about Tubi is that uh, it's free. Uh, this is absolutely not a plug, FYI, but it's a really good way to get into other films because A, they're free because a lot of them are open to the public to watch. Uh, it's just a matter of bringing them in. So like Tubi, Pluto, um, Hulu, if you get Hulu. Hoopla. Hoopla. Hoopla and Canopy. If you have a library card, those things are amazing. Definitely recommend getting a library card. Even if you do not use it, it allows uh, your local library to get funding. So yes. And they're free. And it takes like literally five minutes to sign up. Yeah, totally worth it. Glad to have one. <laughs> and you get, you get access to Hoopla and Canopy. Exactly. And so you get a large variety of um, music, movies, audiobooks, right from your phone. Hoopla, Canopy, Tubi, we, 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 take, uh, we take Venmo. Just yes, yes. Please, please, we love you. We normally use you. Pay us. Yes. <laughs> and then all of this amazing queer content ends up getting ruined by a little thing that Hollywood implemented upon itself called the Hayes Code. Yep, and we still see the effects of it today. The Hayes Code was very uh, misogynistic, racist, and homophobic. Queerness was prohibited as too taboo for the screen, and coding became a necessary thing if we wanted to tell our stories at all. Yeah, and we still see those effects today in a lot of our media. Um, They will not outright say gay. Um, However, they'll have social cues, uh, mannerisms, uh, euphemisms that they will use to basically skirt their way through that code uh, in order to have that representation during a time that it was not okay. Yeah. And there, there are some ways that some very savvy writers were able to get that done in a way that we could watch today and like catch what they were, what they were going for. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And back then, maybe it slipped by the censors, but like those of us who knew, we, we knew. Absolutely. And that's why you see from date, from time to time, 
Um, a good example would be uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, that is the perfect example of uh, coding. Uh, to know that you were with a fellow gay, um, you would use, are you a friend of Dorothy? Yes. And I love how like Judy Garland herself kind of became like her own code. Like being someone's Judy is like being someone's like Yes, yeah, like you are my good Judy. Yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, also her daughter, Liza Minnelli, is now also a queer icon absolutely and it's it's great to see how a lot of our community attach themselves to those who are not even part of the lgbt uh, lgbtq community but um embraced by those allies yeah and as much as like i don't want like allies to be like oh we're part of the community too because not really no but we do appreciate your allyship well that and they've also done a lot with the LGBT community, especially Eliza Minnelli. Oh, tell me about it, yeah. Like, she is, she's family without actually being family. Yep. Uh, because she's done a lot of fundraisers and a lot of stuff for our community that that's what you're supposed to be doing as yeah. an ally. It's an action that A, your work does, and B, your work outside of acting also reflects. Yes. So, like I said, some writers were very savvy in how to, how to squeeze in some queer content into films in one instance they just outright say it and it's one of the most iconic moments ever as a gag within the film bringing up baby you hear Cary grant say the words because i went gay all of a sudden and he's referring of course to the fact that he is wearing a woman's uh nightgown exactly and during the time it was uh 1938 so gay at the time meant happy um, happy, strange. Um, it is that nice little muddled area of our language where it was still passable through the Hays Code because they all went because it meant happy. It meant strange um, in that context, but we all know what he was trying to say. That's what's great with language. It's because yes. language changes and how we can, how it evolves. Yes. Like how language evolves and how we use it today. Yeah. Going into like, particularly that era of old Hollywood, not to speculate on the sexuality of Cary Grant, but many of his uh, contemporaries very much had to keep it, stay in the closet, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that later we would find out, oh, this person had a relationship with that person. Very Like, there's a lot of rumors going on about, say, someone like uh, James Dean, like... Um, Marlon Brando. Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson. Well, Rock Hudson, of course. The, how we found out he was gay was un, his unfortunate um, his unfortunate battle with AIDS. Yeah, with the AIDS epidemic. Um, but it's, fin it's a phenomenal history, especially because we are fortunate enough to literally have Hollywood just literally down the street. Yeah. Uh, that we can go and see um, all that history right then and there. Uh, yeah. Hollywood literally does not change. Trust me. Not at all. Um, so it's easily accessible to see who is where, who lives where, um, and their naughty histories with Very each other. Very much. <laughs> so in the 1940s, it's not correct to call this a genre because this was a this was a sensibility that was recognized years later by French critics called film noir. Uh, it's an aesthetic choice that just sort of like happened throughout the 30s and 40s, uh, post-war anxieties and things like that. One of the things that happened a lot in these features was the uh, presence of a femme fatale, a female character who in some way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly, causes the male protagonist's downfall. So there's a lot of like um, emasculation, anxiety, things like that. But what also happens in these films are relationships between male characters with the suggestion that there's something more there without outright saying it. Absolutely. Uh, one, one example of this is in The Maltese Falcon starring uh, Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart's character is not the one who is queer coded. It is actually Peter Lorre. Um, he's one of those actors, a very famous character actor from the 40s. If you watched any like Bugs Bunny cartoon, uh, he is commonly parodied as sort of like the uh, macabre like character. He's got this very 
uh, raspy voice. Uh, it comes up in Aladdin. Oh, and he's like, yes. I can't bring people, but that that guy, uh, his character in the Maltese Falcon, is not outwardly referred to as gay, but the book that it's based on, his character is gay. Yes. And in the film, there's a whole lot of like innuendos that suggest that he is in a, a same-sex relationship with his associate. What's great about the Maltese Falcon, I'm actually a huge fan of the book. Uh, I went to San Francisco uh, last month, and I specifically went to where, uh, where the book uh, mentions in San Francisco. And they even have a plaque uh, in the alleyway where one of the characters is murdered, uh, where it says, On approximately this spot, Miles Archer, partner of Sam Spade, was done in by Brigitte the femme fatale and it's phenomenal to see real life locations for like said books uh especially uh when the character is gay in the book but they could not see any of that like any of that within the movie itself because the haze code yeah it happens a lot with like adaptations of plays um famously cat on a hot tin roof the male character is supposed to be gay and i think in the movie there's like a heavy suggestion that is completely undermined by the fact that the end of the film shows him wanting to be in a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And so they end up doing the queer coding, giving that wink, wink, nudge, nudge of, hey, we've included this character, but unfortunately we can't say anything. Um, keeping the integrity of the storyline without sacrificing the character itself. Yes. And also we see it in like other film noir, like Double Indemnity, where it's not necessarily the villain character, even though I I did want to go into like how a lot of times the queer coding happens to a character who is a villain. And Double Indemnity, he's the protagonist of the film, but also like he does something terrible and gets his comeuppance at the end. Again, it's not one of those things that like, Watching it at face value, you don't see the queerness, but he has a relationship with his associate, who is also a man. There are, like, lines of dialogue that he says to uh, his friend. Like, he definitely uses the phrase, I love you, in reference to his friend. And yeah, in the film, it's sort of like one of those ingest moments. Like, within the greater context of the film, you could also see it as, I am in love with you. And at the end of the film, like, the person who shows up at his side when he's, like, shot and about to die is his friend. So there appears to be something there, but it's not anything more than what was allowed by the code. Absolutely. And context is everything. Yeah. Um, Especially with an I love you. Like, with me, when I say it to you, it's more of a brotherly, platonic way. Yeah, of course. Um, but without that context of us being best friends, they would think we were lovers. Yeah, and especially in the 1940s, I mean, at that point, that was when, like, masculinity itself was starting to change. So, like, were men that comfortable saying, I love you to one another back then? Yeah. I mean, maybe they they were, in the film, they're, like, besties, but, yeah. No, of course, but, like, it became regulated to family members at that point. Yeah. uh, With the familial uh, love. Uh, paternal love uh not so much with friendships yeah and you don't see that a lot in films of that era mm-hmm. in 1948 alfred hitchcock did a film with, where two characters are it is heavily implied that they are in a relationship with each other and the two of them have basically committed murder which is you know my favorite thing yeah no be gay do crimes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Uh, that one's also a fantastic film. And it's one of the first uh, instances where like it wasn't one single shot, but it was filmed in such a way that it looks like it was one single shot. Question for you. What's the name of the film? Rope. Rope. There we go. Did I not mention it? No, you didn't. Um, It was Rope. (laughs) Fantastic film. You said Hitchcock, so they can definitely do that. Uh, IMDB. (laughs) IMDB. Gay after Hitchcock. (laughs) Yeah. That was uh, that was very good. A Strangers on uh, Strangers on a Train is another one that he did that also like has that sort of like queer subtext between two people plotting a murder or two. Yeah, and we see a lot of that in in that trend of queer coding those villains in today's world with queer coding your villains uh, isn't so much frowned upon. Has a lot of conversation about because it is 
remnants of a past where that's how we were regulated to were villains we were depraved we were conniving um that's how we ended up being portrayed and there's a lot of pushback with the community however doesn't stop us from absolutely loving queer coded villains of course Uh, ursula ursula exactly (laughs) literally divine yes it's literally divine well it's not actually divine but based off of inspired divine, by uh which is a phenomenal performer not a drag queen mind you but yeah. an actor that loved to do drag yes became an iconic character especially in pink flamingos have a stomach for pink flamingos oh my gosh uh, found that out the hard way yeah um just a warning phenomenal <laughs> performances just know that you need an iron stomach for that film yeah i wish somebody had warned me on that <laughs> you should have told me i, I would have warned you i know it was fantastic and after like two days of like wondering what did i just watch uh eventually i came around I'm like yeah you know what this is an important piece of queer cinema so. oh absolutely and john waters really likes to push the envelope uh but the only real exposure with john waters films uh is hairspray yeah. Which is super benign, but also super fun and absolutely queer-coded. Um, however, if you venture off to the other John Waters films, be prepped. Yeah. Uh, in fact, even with Hairspray, my exposure to that one was the musical yes. version. Which I thought was fantastic. And John Waters has a wonderful cameo in that. Absolutely. Where he's the flasher who lives next door. Yes, and it was actually my very first exposure to Ricky Lake because yes. she was in Hairspray. Yes, she was. And ended up having her own talk show. Literally, I grew up on Ricky Lake. Yes. But uh, but I saw the, her actual talk show host before uh, knowing that she was in Hairspray, and that's how I got obsessed with uh, John Waters' films. Uh, yes. So thank you, Ricky Lake. I also enjoyed his performance in uh, Seed of Chucky. Yes. God bless the little people. <laughs> <laughs> another film that's also pushing the boundaries of what it means to be queer-coded and visible instead. Right? The the whole thing with uh, his son being, like, not very gender-fluid. Absolutely. Gender-fluid, which is literally unheard of in mainstream cinema. Uh, and we'll talk about horror and cinema later. Oh, yes. Not all queer-coding was villains. In uh, Rebel Without a Cause, Salmoneo's character, one of the first gay characters gay teen characters in a major motion picture the film once again does not explicitly tell you that he's gay it's salmoneo himself who basically referred to his character that way in a later interview he's also one of the first major actors to publicly come out and also worth noting uh, his co-star from the film james dean was also rumored to uh, be in some way queer Absolutely. Uh, and when questioned about it uh, for his sexual orientation, Dean reported to have uh, have said, no, I am not a homosexual, but I am also not going to go through life with one hand tied behind my back. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> now, one of my favorite uh, gay movie stories from the 50s uh, comes from a very surprising film, the 1959 biblical epic Ben-Hur, where... One of the, the contributing writers to the film, Gore Vidal, who is who was bisexual, uh, he intentionally wrote in a history between the two characters that uh, Ben-Hur and Masala, the villain of the film, that suggests the two of them were in a relationship with each other. Um, this was something that he would confirm later on. Uh, Charlton Heston was hilariously unaware of this yet played it perfectly i have not seen it it's still on my uh to watch list but (laughs) i do recommend seeing it anyway uh, because i actually do trust your taste in movies yeah it is i mean if if you're it is a very biblical film through and through like it does end with like ben-hur meeting jesus um it's based on a book that is heavily biblically influenced and i believe was even blessed by the pope at one point um i think the movie may have been blessed by the pope too if i'm not mistaken um but it's also like a piece of cinema history it has like one of the most exciting like bits to ever be filmed the chariot race so yeah it's definitely worth a look um as long as you're like willing to also take the fact that it's not necessarily preachy but a little bit preachy just a bit 
hasn't stopped anyone from enjoying other religious movies. That is uh, true. Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt. Phenomenal yes. uh, film. Uh, another good one uh, is um, and Joseph uh, and uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which was unfortunately direct to video. Yeah, I've seen the stage version of it, and I do remember enjoying that a lot. Of course, uh, and of course, it stars Donny Osmond uh, from the Osmonds. Uh, I actually met a sister uh, way back when. I'll have to find you the photo of it. It's oh. me literally crying on stage. <laughs> uh, as a little kid uh, in the Bay Area, they had a little festival, and she was one of the main people. And they were like choosing a child. They chose me, and they literally put me on stage. And it's literally me just sobbing because I'm like, there's a ton of people, oh. and just uh, me ugly crying as a little toddler. And right behind me is literally Murray Osmond, and it's. It's great, so yeah. I will have to find it for you. I I want to see that photo. <laughs> there are a couple of amazing documentaries, one of which I thought was like a complete act of bravery to release this film in 1968 when it was still basically a crime to be doing this. Absolutely. I'm talking about The Queen. Ah, uh, The Good Old Queen, the uh, drag pageant in New York. Um, it gives you a slice-of-life look uh, during a large pageant uh, taking place in New York City uh, with iconic characters such as Crystal LaBeja. Uh, may she rest in peace. Crystal Le- yeah, she's um, the one who does the meltdown at the very end. Yes. And rightfully so, because it was rigged. The, the whole yeah. pageant was rigged. You see um, them surrounding a white protagonist basically playing favorites, knowing basically the judges and her getting pushed to the very end. And you're seeing a slow burn of everyone just kind of burnt out and slowly learning that they're not going to win. It's going to be her. And Krisha LaBeja gives you the most righteous, the beautiful chef kiss of a speech that is scorched earth. I swear to every stars in heaven that it was a curse. Uh... Because you never hear of that drag queen ever again. Yes. <laughs> I don't even remember the name of that drag queen, but I do remember Crystal LaBeja. Absolutely. Because she forms uh, the House of LaBeja and the founders of uh, Ballroom. Yep. Which would become the subject of another iconic documentary, Paris is Burning. Yes, and this is what I'm actually uh, more engrossed on. In fact, that is uh, during Pride Month, I'd like to watch the documentary because it is where a lot of our language comes from now. Um, And we're seeing it now in mainstream media when this was in the 80s. This is almost 40 years ago. Yes, 40 years ago. All you 80s kids, I'm 1988. uh, 85. 85. We are hitting our 40s, millennials. Oh, stop reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) But... It's right there. It's, it's right, right there, there in full reach, but you are still so beautiful and Thank so young. You. <laughs> you're living your best life. Um, but we need to know that all the language that they use in that film um, is striking now because it is what you're hearing in our mainstream media today. Um, a lot of it was the pioneers of art, history uh, of the community, um, language, um, gender identity. Um, all smashed up in between the ball culture of New York City. It is the quintessential film uh, that I do recommend everyone to have. And uh, if you are able to, to get the Criterion version of it. Worth it. Absolutely worth it. And it gives you an extra hour of footage that no one else has seen in years. Yeah. Um, Without ball culture, we don't get RuPaul's Drag Race. Absolutely not. Uh, We don't get Legendary. Nope. In fact, Legendary is kind of like an offshoot of... It's literally ball culture in a reality show format. Absolutely. And ball culture has spread across the states. It's not just New York City. New York City is the hub of it. Um, But you see shows in Georgia. You'll see shows in Jersey and even here, uh, here in L.A., Um, it is just a matter of um, knowing where to look. Yes. And especially here in, like, Southern California, it's not hard to find. No, absolutely not. And a lot of it drops down to uh, the queer uh, black community um, that were that said pioneers. Um, and you're going to see a lot of AAVE um, in that language now being translated into um, what we see now in mainstream. So we'll see, like, Shablam, 
uh, work. Um, Sachet was another one too. Yeah. Um, you'll see a lot of the queer language that we use now, 40 years ago, literally 40 years ago, created immediately um, unheard of at that time. Um, and hearing it back now, it's basically what we say on the day to day. And the biggest importance of uh, Pride season is knowing our history and knowing where our language comes from, because without them, we would not have a lot of our queer art language today. I saw this one very recently. In fact, the first time I saw it was when I went to see it with you at the Frida. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it like it quickly became one of my all-time favorite movies. I understood right away. I was watching one of the most important films I think ever made. Absolutely, because and... it's not just a film, a great film. It's it's history. Yeah, and it's a beautiful telling of everyone's stories. It's about heartbreak. It's about love. It's about victory. It's about being effeminate. It's about being masculine. It's being who you are in a space that values everyone all the time. In a time when that wasn't like, like, they couldn't do that everywhere. Like, without the fear of, you know, being attacked, being exactly vilified. And when it when you see queer success like that, it's beautiful. It's yes. beautiful, but also it's heartbreaking um, because it was during the eve of the AIDS epidemic yes. uh, when that happened. And there's maybe two people who are left from that documentary who are still alive today. Yeah. I believe one of them, though, worked on Pose. Yes, yeah. I, actually, both of them worked on Pose. I do recommend that show. It is a beautiful retelling um, of ballroom culture and queer culture uh, on the East Coast. Yes. So, 1968, the Hayes Code ends. But unfortunately, queer coding, not so much. Uh, however, we do get to see gays in film a little bit more. A very uh, infamous example of this was in 1969, a film called The Gay Deceivers. Oh, iconic. Even if you just <sighs> see the 30-second clip. If, if you've been on social media uh, within the last, what, five years or so, you've probably seen the clip. Look what you've done to my peonies. They're marigolds. My God, she's right. I think they are marigolds. Oh, God. Literally tattoo that phrase on me and I'll be set for life because it's just so over the top and campy, despite the fact that the characters themselves aren't actually gay. Well, that character is. Well, those characters are. The ones who are speaking. But like the main characters, the premise of the film is not unlike another very offensive film that came out relatively recently. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Uh, yeah, about two heterosexual characters who pretend to be gay to, in this case particularly, to get out of being in the military. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a problematic narrative, uh, to say the least. Uh, the film's gay characters are very over the top to a, an almost comically cartoonish degree. However, uh, it's worth noting that Michael Greer, who is one of those actors who... The, the Peonies guy, um, he worked with the writer to minimize the negative impact that the film would have. Absolutely, because it is, queerness is seen on the lens of straight people. Um, we'll just have one note. It'll have one note, and which would be over-the-top, flamboyant, effeminate. Yes. Um, and that is the unfortunate of being the signifier of gay. Yeah. And we see we see that all the way up through even like nineties two thousands, your Will and Grace, your um, and Will and Grace I feel like has been toned down a little bit, but you can tell like this character's gay. Absolutely, and yeah. even then with Will and Grace, they had different types of gays on the show. They yeah. had um, Leslie Jordan. Uh, a lot of gay icons were on that show. Yeah, and and you can tell it had a lot of time and care of the audience and what their tastes were like during the late 90s. Yeah. Another example of like what happened when the, the Hayes Code ended is we started to get more films from outside of the United States that would become um, huge hits. Uh, back in 1978, there was this um, very hilarious 
film called uh, my French is terrible so if if you could correct me if I'm incorrect in pronouncing this Le Cage Folle Foye Le Cage you know more than I do I'm... okay sorry I don't know how to pronounce that um this would get remade in the 90s as the birdcage oh which yeah. is a staple yeah. in queer film well, that one is, and so was the 70s version, which was made in France. Yes. Uh, it's still to this day, as of 2020, it is the 11th highest grossing foreign language film to be released in the United States. So it was huge. It, it was even up for some Oscars the year that it came out. Like, it was a huge hit. Uh, and just to know that all the way back in the 70s, a film, a queer screwball comedy could have been, like, a huge success, like, that was that was one of the most surprising things for me. And it is a really good example of uh, when you make it, they will come. Yes, of course. And of course, you know, we can't really talk about that without talking about The Birdcage. Oh, yeah, the American re-release uh, of it. Not re-release, but the... Uh, remake. Remake yeah. of it. Um, with... Uh, Robin Williams Robin and Williams. Nathan Lane. Yes. And they have so many iconic moments in the film that you can literally just quote for hours but the dynamic between the two characters has a stellar um chemistry yeah, yeah they have stellar chemistry that is just phenomenal and robin wasn't even gay yeah nathan lane was and what was interesting about that one now the thing about both films is you have like two leads who have like just amazing chemistry um but back to like robin williams who was known for being this over-the-top like comedic actor he was like the genie a few years before that mm -hmm. he was mrs doubtfire and it was like all about like even his stand-up is just this rapid fire like over the top doesn't stop for this film he wanted to be the subdued gay yes like he wanted to play it uh, tastefully and he let nathan lane the actual gay actor be the one who was over the top and and silly and you know effeminate and they fed off of each other they they show two different sides of a coin of what a gay person can be it's not two overly the top flamboyant characters yeah but it's acknowledging that they are two completely different people um harmoniously living together which is beautiful which is phenomenal and i feel like that that's a huge part of the gay experience is we're not just a cookie cutter uh community yeah so since we're like in the 90s now um we jumped real quick yeah uh one of the most prolific film directors at least in the independent scene is uh gus van sant yes um in 1991 he released this film which was a it was a um, modern interpretation of henry v i believe it was called my own private idaho starring uh uh, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix and in the film the two are in a relationship you know more than I do because I've only seen stills of the film yeah a very beautiful film and his entire career uh, Gus Van Sant he likes to really showcase like the male form which uh, you see that a lot in his movies including the non-queer ones like a Good Will Hunting mm -hmm. where you see Matt Damon without you know Sans shirt you know for a good period of time um, but also, like, he does explore queer films and ideas behind it. It gets a little offensive, though, uh, with the movie Elephant. Elephant, I, I don't want to, like, go too deep into the premise of the film because um, things have happened recently that very much mirror events in the film. But two of the characters who do something terrible happen are shown to have a queer relationship with each other. Um, then you have, obviously, his biggest success as a filmmaker, like, well, one of his, I mean, Goodwill Hunting was pretty big, uh, Milk, starring Sean Penn as Harvey Milk. Yes, and that one was filmed in the Bay Area. Um, I remember when it was being filmed, too, uh, because a lot of people, uh, I used to work at Barnes Noble, and they would always come in, uh, and I even had a little kid who was in this, one of the scenes, um, talk about it to me one day and basically saying that we should all be accepted and loved and from that early age um, full knowing what film she's in um, and also realizing the biggest impact that she has even just being a minor character in the background 
um, she know she knew she knew her impact uh, in the film. Yeah, the film did have a huge. It was released on the eve of like one of the worst, I guess, electoral decisions made by voters in California. The Good old Prop 8. Prop 8, yeah. And um, I, I wondered when the movie came out, I'm like, I wondered if it would have made an impact if this came out before that election. Because it came out like the December right after. Yeah, and and we we definitely needed it a year early because when Prop, hit, Prop 8 hit, you it was just a vacuum. It was a vacuum in California. Yeah. And... And we couldn't really speak about it because yeah. it's still an eve of us still being accepted. I was I was still in the closet at that point, and I think that was one of the catalysts that got me to come out. Mm-hmm. Was that is like, well, if people are willing to vote away my rights, like they need to understand, like you know somebody who's gay, one hundred percent. And if you don't, and you speak out about that, they know immediately you are not safe to talk to. Exactly. And it was one of the biggest reasons why I left the church uh, at that time was because they were having open sermons about it and how to vote. And, you know, that is not okay. Yeah, it's not. But it was just normal. It was a normal sermon. And it left me disgusted how they can just openly say, I do not deserve rights. Yes, exactly. The film shows a religious figure, uh, the uh, infamous Anita Bryant, who was using... uh, particular language to get people to vote away gay rights and you see that succeed in florida and she moved all of that effort into california don't you just like when history repeats itself yeah and we literally just watched that happen with prop 8 Mm -hmm. and it was heartbreaking it was like i i was riled up i was like no no she can't be successful and of course history shows that in california at least she wasn't but, like, we did see that resurgence happen when Prop 8 was voted on. And it was, I was, we were all still reeling from it, but it was also an experience, especially the very final scene uh, where Harvey Milk says the words, you gotta give him hope. And that still reverberates, I think, because that is something that was, at the time was very important to us. It was very important that we had that hope. And to this day, like, it, still is i think oh absolutely and him being the unofficial mayor of castro street you yeah. can actually still visit uh where his office was in castro um 575 castro street if you want to know um the fact that he had such a huge impact especially during that era where we're seeing the same exact talking points that they are using now yes. back then we can now discern what's happening and how we can move on and move forward yeah and how to like how to spot it how to spot like when someone is using bad faith arguments because it's not new it's 100 percent not new and we see it in history all Um, the time we saw it with prop 8 we saw it back then during his assassination um we're seeing it now with don't say gay yeah we're seeing it now we're seeing it with a lot of legislation that's being pushed uh through multiple states um, using the same bad faith argument that's literally word for word. Anita Bryant. Yeah, Anita yeah. Bryant. Uh, and a, most, like, I'm a, I understand that a majority of it, and a majority of it is being pushed against the trans community, which is still, this is still not good. No. Like, we absolutely need to be protecting the trans community. They are part of us. They, um, all they want to do is exist. That's it politicians are going after them basically for no reason it's it's a signal to people who they know will vote for them no matter what Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is disenfranchisement it's disenfranchisement it is a lot of saying whatever it gets to get you vote, get you to vote and our trans communities are the most vulnerable and they are the reason why we have rights. Yes. And if they go down, we're next. Absolutely. Don't think for one second they're going to stop with the trans community. And they're not going to stop until we make them stop. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to go ahead and cut off the episode. Uh, join us next week for part two, where we will be discussing more modern films, such as Brokeback Mountain, uh, Love, Simon, Moonlight... And even Fire Island. 
We also go through uh, trans representation in film. And we will be ending on our rotating segment, a brand new one that I am introducing on this episode uh, next week, I mean. Our Q&A session will also be included in next week's episode. I know this week uh, sort of ended on, I don't want to say a down note, but definitely um, one that kind of makes you think and possibly may have, you know, acted as a downer, which is antithetical to the very point of me making this podcast. So in order to maybe lift your spirits, I do want to play a quote from the very uh, famous political figure we had just been discussing towards the end of this episode, uh, right after the sign-off. So uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, Join us next week for the second half of this amazing conversation. And I hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together. Without hope, the essence give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone. But without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much.